Goedemiddag. Um, hier gesprek gaan ons in Afrikaans en in Engels um, hou. Um, groot verwelkoming aan die drie schrijvers hier. Um, on, on the right side um, Chris Monovic, the writer of uh, Butchers and Shepherds. Um, in the middle, Tracy Farron, who did uh, Whiplash and uh, the translation uh, Tess, and Brett Michael Innes, uh, the writer of uh, Rachel's, Rachel Weeping, which is being translated in Afrikaans, uh, Sink, and you probably know the film. Um, in the year 70, was daar een groot filmmaker wat op die stadium in die werk was, Jans Ruitenbach. En in onderhoude het hy vir my gesê, um, hy is so spuit in die tyd, in die vroeg 70s, daar daar nie meer aanpassings was van romans nie. En jy het die hele generatie in die 60s gehad, die 60ers, die Brinks en die Etienne Leroux en Bitterman van hulle het bijgedra op die stadium in die oplevering van Afrikaanse film om uh, van hulle romans te help um, aan te pas vir film. En uh, in die jare 80 was Mani van der Rensburg het saamgewerkt met Johan van Jaarsveld en daar was heel wat aanpassings. Het is vir my verblijdend op hierdie stadium um, om te sien hoeveel romans word aangepas dier Zuid-Afrikaanse uh, regisseers, dier Zuid-Afrikaanse filmmakers, mense wat actief deel is van hierdie hele new wave in Zuid-Afrikaanse film. So I would like to start um, with a general question. Um, I've read the novels I've viewed the films, I've read the translations, um, and there's amazing in terms of the intertextuality between the novels, the screenplay, um, and I would like, from each of you, I'd like to hear um, how did you go through this process of adaptation? Uh, because in many cases, very, very complex adaptations. Uh, in, in the case of Chris, uh, the novel is based on 32 cases. And actually on, on, on page 40, the incident happens with a shooting. But before that is the day-to-day -day sort of uh, executions. And that has been adapted into a core drama with flashbacks, which explains. In the case of Tracy, um, Whiplash, it's such a delicate um, portrayal of the inner world of the main character and her thought processes when she's going through these encounters with men. Um, and in, in a way to translate that into filmic terms is for me fascinating. And Brett, in, in 
and you and in, in the case of Rachel weeping and uh, sync uh, screenplay, you actually wrote the screenplay as a sort of a skeleton, um, and out of that the um, novel developed. So I would really like to listen to each of you if you take us through this process of adaptation. Uh, because it's really fascinating to compare the novels with the films. I've said too much now. Should I go first? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I guess for me, using the script as a skeleton, I would take each scene uh, we knew we were going into production already. Um, I, was, I knew which actors were going to actually play the roles. Uh, many of the locations I already knew. And the, I would take each scene and then make a chapter out of that. And often what happens is added layers come to that, uh, more stretches out from the chapter that doesn't necessarily come into the script. But I kind of see myself primarily as a filmmaker. And uh, yeah, I think that helped a lot with just, just making the novel come to life. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think what else I could say around that. Um. Well, you, in, in the novel, especially in, in the Afrikaans uh, translation, you included a whole backstory, for instance, in terms of Rachel, um, her life in Mozambique, the, uh, the major contrast of her life there with yeah. her life in South Africa. What, what I really did um, enjoy was I kind of saw the novel as when you are working with actors, you create a, a Bible or a treatment for them where you really explore the back history of the, the characters and you craft these things. So that's work that you really do do as a filmmaker. So for me to be able to actually just put that down on page and to make a novel out of that, I was able to then give the novel before it was published uh, to my actors. They also informed a lot of the choices. So I would sit with Anel, Shorky and Jacques and we discuss who these characters were really. Um, they, so, so many ideas that they have would come in. I had my book editor speaking into things, uh, and then the editors on the script, uh, Sandra Vaughan, Corinne de Toy, and Anel Alexander. They also just, I think my first pass at the story, um, I really got Rachel, the domestic worker. Um, Michelle was such a tough character to make people like because of what happened there. And Anel, because she's playing that role, really just like pulled that tension of, we need to make people like her, at least not demonize her. So I really credit those ladies for helping me also just make sure that I wasn't telling a man's version of a female experience, but to listen to them when I'd maybe gone off track a bit. And it becomes this glorious mess of um, voices coming together. I think we, it does take a village to, to make a story. And, as much as my name is on there, it's me gathering all these narratives. Uh, I used to work in the nonprofit sector, so I would go into malnutrition clinics and to war-torn places and really see the Rachels that are coming to South Africa um, looking for better lives for their kids, which I, I love that I was able to give an epilogue and a prologue in the book to kind of show where Rachel came from and where she went. It didn't work for the movie from budgetary perspective, and also it just made sense to start on that awkward conversation and end on the same shot of, of her leaving the house in the movie. But um, what I also love is people, they try and picture what happens to Rachel, um, and some have a very positive outlook as to what happens to her life. I don't think it ends very well for her, um, which I'm able to show in the, in the book. Trace. 
Yeah, that parallel process sounds absolutely fantastic. I was just talking to Brett just now, and I was saying, what, okay, what is the main um, characteristic that you need to be a good director? And he was saying, actually, you need to communicate. These are human skills. And so it sounds very much like directing as a, a curation. Um, I think I'm more of a novel writer. I write a good script. <laughs> but... Um, I wouldn't. I don't think I'd have that ability to compromise and let go. I'd need to be alone and own those poor, poor characters, and just be in, in dialogue with them entirely. Um, I think I would too easily get bewildered with outside opinions and and other people's histories coming to to bear. So basically, I did exactly that. I, I hung out with real sex workers, and then I let Tess, this imaginary character. Um, just um, dictate to me and form herself as she was going along with her, her hard, hard life and her crazy self-destructive compulsion and her sense of humor that just won't go away. It's quite, it's quite brash, quite wry, and um, I had, she, she, that sense of humor sustained me through the writing of it. It was quite a... It's a it is, is a gritty novel. It's such a, an overused cliche, but it is, um, but funny. And so what I had to do then in turning it into a film script was to realize that the horse, the Maltese poodle, the neighbor, the neighbor's son, um, everybody's sto side stories, backstories, and life mission cannot come into the story. It had to be about the main character and any kind of diversion. And the main character is very bent on diversion. When she doesn't want to face facts, she goes sideways doesn't work in a film script. You can't do that because you lose the momentum, you lose your audience attention, and you lose the meaning. So it was a, it was a process of stripping. Um, it wasn't too difficult, but I really, you know, then different producers come on board and they want different things from you. That I found difficult. At one point, somebody said, okay, this is, um, we're gonna this is going to feel completely like a documentary and as dark as possible. So the horse must not only, it, it can stay in, but it has to die tragically. I got this gut feeling that perhaps this um, relationship wasn't going to work out. <laughs> um, yeah, so it went through, it, went, it goes, you know, with film writing, I think very often it gets redrafted according to the people who are on board and who are attached. Finally, Meg, the director, picked it up and it was easy to work with her because she was gentle, kind and firm. Um, I wanted it to be much more of a redemption story, but she knew about genre. I would like to know um, the development from the inner world of a character. In the in the in the in the form, it's more um, an external world. You see things happening to her, but you decided not to keep the sort of narration, like in the book of the eye. That was a learning process for me because this is the first um, script that was actually going to be made. And uh, coming straight from the novel, I was in love with the language. It was the English language at that point. And I wrote it with voiceovers because I couldn't get, get... People kept saying, she's got such a brilliant voice. And I suppose, you know, I was a bit seduced by that and I couldn't let go of that voice. So I wrote the film script with voiceovers, which is just... I mean, I think everybody knows it's usually a, a crutch when you can't show what's happening. So I not only showed what was happening, plus, but used voiceovers on top of that. 
um, and then made the big decision to drop that. So slowly fell out of love with the voice, which is fantastic and completely necessary. Um, and started off with too many flashbacks, too much dialogue, and again, just cutting, cutting, cutting. Like, I suppose, a kind of a sculpture where you're just cleaving away stone. It's, and the polishing only happens when the director gets hold of that script, when you finally hand it over and, and, and you stay at home and stay out of it. Um, but I'll, we'll talk about translation later. The um, luckily, luckily, I'd written the film script with a careful sense of the journey, what she was thinking, because all the way through the book, I'm telling you what she's thinking. I am the character. Um, when I wrote the film script, I had to be really conscious of exactly how she was feeling. It couldn't be ambiguous. She couldn't be feeling ambivalent. If she was ambivalent, you needed to know that she was, she was determined here and absolutely helpless in the next second, but something had to happen to see that change. So you had to see that movement. So I wrote it very carefully with that in mind because it's, it was an incredibly internal story. Just the last question here. Um, it's about um, the ending. You start the film with the character narrating and in the end it's addressed to a mother. And it's ending in the ocean, but in the, in the novel it's actually at a, at a sort of a get-together. Um, oh, really? I can't remember that far. The, the script has become so much more real to me. Ah, yes, you're quite right. Oh, it feels like the right ending in the sea. But it does feel like the right ending in the sea. <laughs> no, I'm just asking. I think, I think um, no, no, it's a, it's a lovely question. I'd actually completely forgotten how the book ended. When they reprinted the book, as I was saying to Chris, I didn't reread it because I didn't want to start fixing it. There's no ways. I felt like I had to honor that younger self and I needed to honor the Tess who told that story, the imaginary Tess that became like my family member for a couple of years. I didn't want to go and censor her or critique my younger self. But I think with the movie, um, because you can't... It's the beginning and the end that you mentioned. You know, the prologue, the epilogue. You've got to cut off the fish's head and the fish's tail and show the people the flesh, you know, on, in a movie. Um, so we needed... Once, once the big dilemma has been resolved, you can't keep people in their seats. Um, we needed to know where she was at. And it's funny enough, people still come to me and say... Did she commit suicide? Or <laughs> but, and, but many people love the mystery of that. Yeah. I'm in a different position to my friends here, to my left. Uh, I didn't write the script. I had very little to do with the making of the, the film. Um, when I was in an argument with a scriptwriter, screenwriter, as he calls himself, about certain scenes that I saw in the in one of his drafts, he said to me, the book is yours and the film is ours. And I thought, okay, well, I understand that. I, I could actually, I actually appreciate direct talk like that because I then realized what my position was. And from that time onwards, I fought with him only to fix things that were glaringly inaccurate because my genre is creative nonfiction. I take a part of South African history. I research it to death, no pun intended here, and then I tried to 
convey those facts by means of a novel. I created, in this case of Shepherds and Witches, a fictional murder case with fictional characters, fictitious characters, and a trial in Pretoria, but Pretoria is real, the Palace of Justice is real, the descriptions had to be accurate, and I've had many comments from people telling me exactly that. The filmmakers didn't feel that kind of constraint, so they moved scenes to Cape Town. Instead of filming in Pretoria, where they could represent the glorious architecture and makeup of that city properly and beautifully, they ignored it. So the film is a completely different animal to what I had seen in my mind's eye in my book. Uh, I didn't recognize it, to be quite honest. They changed the ending of the film to uh, suit, and they told me this openly, the Black Lives Matter movement in the States. They said they would just not accept this ending. And in the process, they lost what I call the denouement of the film, uh, sorry, of the book, where by finding the accused not guilty, the judge or the court, in effect, convicted the death penalty or condemned it, to use a proper the phrase of the death penalty process. So uh, I had, as I say, very little to do with the adaptation from the book to the movie. I did have an opportunity to rewrite the book after I'd seen the scripts and so on, but with, before the movie came out into Afrikaans. I, I did a complete reworking of it. Uh, the book came out in 2008, Shepherds and Butchers. I had worked on it from 2002, presented the uh, first manuscript to uh, Umuzi in 2006. It took a year of editing by, um, what's his name again? I, no, not for Anyway, I can see the bearded face. Um, he, he turned me from a legal writer into what I would regard as a proper writer. Um, and then nothing happened. I sold the film rights then to Anand Singh, and then nothing happened. And they were stuck with a Mandela movie, um, and eventually, in 2015, they started producing screenplays. And the first one was absolutely horrendous, to the point that if I could reach them, I would slap them in the face. <laughs> Multiple times, each way. They had things like senior advocates talking to each other and calling each other, saying, how's it, my China? <laughs> they had tennis players on a tennis court, like an American slapstick movie, not trying to get the ball into the court on the other side, but to hit the player on the other side. And I said to them, this is ridiculous. And they said, no, it's just the first draft. And then one draft came after the other, plenty of them. And at one point they said, no, we can't have two male lawyers appearing in the case. We have to make the one a female. So the one is now Kathleen Murray instead of James Murray. And then they wanted to include a love scene between the two lawyers in the case, the prosecutor and defense counsel. I said to her, this case is about the death penalty. It's not about sex or a love story. 
And so it went on and on and on. In the end, all I can say is, I think I had some influence on them. They've removed the glaring mistakes. And then I suppose because the filmmaking was now in my mind's eye, I was able to do the Afrikaans version <coughs> with much tighter editing. Uh, thank you, Donnell. <laughs> a, a much, dare I say, a better publisher. The book just presents more beautifully. Uh, I'd now become aware of the fact, because of the visuals in the film, how you can reach people by sound and sight, which a book doesn't do. The book creates the picture in your own mind. The book has plenty pages to create one scene. In the film, it's one page on the screenplay, and they do it with sound and sight. They sort of overwhelm your, your senses. The other thing, of course, in the big difference to me is that in a, in a film, you sit in a theater with as many people as the theater can carry. You have a shared experience of the sight and sound and the story being told by those means. A book is a private thing. You read it lying in bed, sitting on the toilet, at the dinner table, on the train, on the bus, wherever it pleases you. You have quiet time to absorb what's there. And as a writer, you have the opportunity to reach those people in those private moments where you can address them directly, individually, as opposed to dealing with a whole room full of people. Uh, if I were to write a screenplay, I suppose I would, I would try to reach the individual sitting in the theater more than the, the totality of the audience. Um, that's all I can say. <laughs> There's, there's another question, and that's more about the visual equivalence for the words in the novels. In, in each of the films, there's very beautiful examples. Thinking about Brett's film, um, use of a swimming pool and the creepy crawling, um, and the symbolism involved there. Uh, could you tell us more about that? And, and, and especially also, in the novel, you've got almost this whole list of artifacts in the house um, to create that impression of a material world in contrast with the modest life of Rachel um, and also her existence in Mozambique. In the film, it's almost like this very white, sterile world. Yeah, I think the film was definitely informed by choices made with my production designer and director of photography. Um, with any project I work with, I like to choose a physical element that will become the guiding star for the project. And with Sunk, it was water. Um, I tap into a bit of Japanese philosophy to um, also inform a lot of the uh, emotional choices. But uh, in earlier drafts of the screenplay, Rachel had originally come from uh, Zimbabwe. But as this water thing became more present, it's life, it's death, it's the swimming pool, uh, there's the clean water or the beautiful water of Mozambique uh, contrasted with the sterile water of the swimming pool. Um, it became clear that I needed to make her from a place where there was water. And a lot of people actually struggled with the idea of her being a Mozambican domestic worker. And it is, it's not as common as, say, someone from Malawi or 
um, from Zimbabwe, but it became clear to me that this had to uh, inform everything. So water informed camera movement. Uh, it informed... Uh, there is an element of water in every shot in the film, be it water on the table, dripping in the sound design, uh, the rain, the colours that we used, our palettes. Um, everything came from that place. And then that, I guess, fed into the, uh, into the novel. Um, yeah, I think the swimming pool is a lot more ominous in the novel, especially the creepy crawly. Um, just with the logistics of filming with a child and on a small budget in South Africa, we couldn't actually show the um, child drowning. But I guess my intention with the film had always been that anything that was important would take place on the circumference of the frame. So when the kid is drowning, our focus is on uh, Anel Alexander while she's on the phone doing something quite meaningless. Um, that's something that Alfonso Coron does very well in films like Etumama Tambien, uh, making sure that your focus is on a simple, almost universal thing that everyone understands. And then on the outside, you are just hinting at something more important. And I find with art, asking the questions is more interesting than, than telling the answers. Um, but a lot of the visuals definitely came from sitting down with my team uh, and just figuring out how can we, we make this water element uh, stronger. And what's also fascinating is how the characters at different points um, react to the swimming pool and to... Yeah, I think um, th there's a scene in the book which we did film, but it just didn't work. <laughs> it happens in filmmaking, but... Uh, where the creepy crawly as it's uh, sucking air, that horrible sound that we all, we all know. Um, Michelle, who it's kind of towards the latter half of the, of the film, um, she's heavily pregnant, this is her guilt, it's screaming at her that sound, and she gets out of bed and actually smashes the, the creepy crawly. It just didn't look good on film, so we, we left it out. Um, yeah, and also, I wish it had come out more in the film, um, but that sound is what, it's the first thing that Rachel hears when she sees uh, Maya in the swimming pool because the creepy crawly has, um, has surfaced. And in the book, the, when Michelle actually sees Maya in the swimming pool, the creepy crawly is actually sucking on the child at the, the bottom of the water. Um, that was a bit more of a, a blatant uh, thing there. But even then for the male character, he's cleaning the pool, this idea that the water is getting bitter, it's turning color. You can't clean it, and just the way bitterness comes into our lives, um, that sometimes you do have to drain the entire pool to get rid of it, and it's not a happy ending uh, when you do something like that. You actually sometimes are just ending something, but in that place uh, there's, I guess, a release. Tracy, in, in, in the case of uh, Tess, um, I've, I've read the... Uh, the novel again after I've seen the film on um, Saturday morning and um, the, the equivalence here, audiovisual equivalence was for me quite remarkable and in, in, in one case um, with the attack in the garage how sound, the screeching sound is actually becoming so overwhelming um, it's almost enhancing the intensity in the novel. I don't know if you want to talk about that. You know, the, I think the sound design very much um, became a character in the movie and somehow filled in where the dialogue had been stripped. So the main actress, Christian Fisser, was incredible. She was a young woman who completely didn't want to do the movie, didn't want to do the movie, and relented and committed and completely embodied 
the past and the emotional world of this character in a way that is qu quite mind-blowing. <clears throat> and um, she was so good that it was perfectly possible for the camera to look into her eyes and see what she was thinking. So the dialogue was largely unnecessary. The journey was there. It was in her eyes. Um, and so then I think that gave scope for the sound design to become much more prominent. Um, and because it's quite a... The, the scenes are quite short, they, and there could be a sense of fracture. It was quite deliberate in a way, because this is a woman with a fractured psyche, a fractured mind, mind who's running from the truth and running from memory. Later on, it becomes more continuous. But the sound design then needed to, to stitch these images, the imagery together. And it was often quite harsh and surprising, the, rail, the, the, the train track barreling every now and then to kind of, you know, get, get up this, the, your own heartbeats and your own sense of trepidation or sense that something is going to happen and, and it, c it cannot be stopped. And that garage scene, that's, that screaming door, it gives you, you know, you, it's, 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 a, it's a warning sign. It's, you, know, you know that something big is going to go down. You're wishing it wouldn't, but it's, again, relentless. It's, it's the machi machinery of abuse is, is at work. What's interesting is we had the same sound designer on our films. Oh, really? Yeah, Barry. Oh. So he's got yeah. some skills. And did he work very differently with yours? Um, mean, with Sync, we had... It, yeah? it was a point of... The loudest point in the movie was at the big crescendo. So everything kind of led up to that. And we used this underwater effect quite subtly. But uh, it was a very... Yeah, I think looking at each of our scripts, he made very different choices, but ones that actually work quite well. A beautiful intuition. That guy's incredible, whoever he is. <laughs> I wasn't on set. They kept me away because I was very much like Chris. I had, I had several heart attacks in the space of a few, not real ones, but I swear I was this close. And um, they just knew they didn't have budget to have an, 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 a very upset writer on set because things go horribly wrong on set and they drop scenes that you think are critical and they haven't got time for the writer to say so. But, um, yeah, I was very impressed with that sound design. Some people found it jarring. You're sitting in the movie house and it feels like there's something coming at you from the side. But that, that's fantastic because that was Tessa's life. That's how she created it. And the same uh, with um, Shepherds and Butchers, the sound, uh, sound design. In that one particular scene, I thought, wow, this is incredible. It's a flashback. Um, in the beginning of a court case where you as a viewer um, is basically introduced to the first execution and people, they're just falling to the floors and that whole scene I thought was absolutely brilliant. I don't know how you <laughs> feel about it. Uh, I have mixed feelings about that. I, I've, I've heard critiques of the film uh, saying that overwhelming incident of sound and sight, the bodies dropping and the clanging of the machinery of the gallows, uh, was what made, for them, made the movie for them. Uh, I would have liked it to be a bit more subtle. Uh, I was interested in what Brett said about the, the drowning in the pool. We were talking at breakfast, I've got family here, this morning, and I said to them, that's how you present the facts in a subtle way. You don't show 
the chance struggling in the water for five minutes and then die. You make the reader or the viewer imagine that. You've got to take their attention away from it so that they see it from the periphery of their vision, not directly, full frontal. Now, the hanging scenes in Shepherds and Butchers were presented in that full frontal fashion, brutally honest. That's how it really happened. And since my film book uh, is about what really happened, maybe that's a proper reflection uh, of the events in the film. But when I saw that film the first time, I was shocked to see the brutality of it. Even though I had written it, I had researched it, I had spoken to the man who was there, on whose, uh, on, on whose life the character Leon Labuskachny is based. I've spoken to him. He's the one who pulled those prisoners up by the rope to drop them a second time. So I, I had experienced all of this vicariously through him. But still, when I saw that scene, I was shocked. I was really shocked. Um, my sister said she had her head under the, the chair. She couldn't watch this. Um, people started crying. <laughs> they had to dish out tissues in the one movie house. Um, what would I have done with that? I don't know. I'm not a filmmaker. Um, when I did land, after the first viewing of the film, next to a film producer in Sydney, uh, he said to me, uh, what did you think of the film? And before I could answer, he said to me, you can answer honestly, he said, because I've never met a writer who was satisfied with a film they'd made of his book. And that's how I felt at the time. I've now since seen the film, I don't know, five, six times in uh, Flissingen in Holland, in Amsterdam. Where else did I see it? I've seen it <laughs> plenty times. And each time I see more and more of the filmmaker's art at work. Uh, subtle things that I'd missed the first time around. Uh, I've seen good things, and I've seen things that haven't really pleased me. Um, the one character, the, the soldier, Pierre de Villiers, is supposed, according to the script I've got right here, screenplay, I should say. They're very keen on the distinction. Um, According to the screenplay, he's described as a lean cat of a man, cat type of a man. He walks with cat-like movements. But in the film, they've got this old Wumi, who's a brilliant actor, but he's miscast. He doesn't belong in that role. They needed a young, upright, soldierly-like uh, person, special services of everything, of all. Uh, so those things didn't please me. But the one character came across exactly as I thought he would, and that was the young man, Garion Dowds. Uh, I, was really, I thought he was the best actor in the movie. Steve Coogan might have the reputation, but that young man was very, very special in that form. Could you tell us about the, the process um, of the Afrikaans reworking, because it's more than a translation. Um, to be honest, I enjoyed writing the Afrikaans more than I did the English. I'm Afrikaans speaking, if people here haven't noticed. <laughs> but I, I, I hadn't really thought of writing in Afrikaans, because I practiced in Durban, 
where the milieu is English. My legal writing was in English. My lectures were in English. My theses were in English. Everything was English, except we spoke Afrikaans in my house. The result is that I lost a lot of my idiomatic uh, Afrikaans. Uh, when it came to rewriting Shepherds and Butchers, I decided to cut out the things that I could do better. Uh, I reduced uh, what they call clumping. Clumping is where a writer tries to show the reader how clever they are by introducing little snippets of information that they have you know, gathered from wherever. So I removed all of that. I removed all of the legal analyses of the 32 men's cases, the men who were hanged, because I'd actually started the original book analyzing those cases to try and find out why are these people killing as they were doing and which ones do we choose for execution? I still have no clear answers to either question, by the way. But when I got to Luxman, I decided I'm going to cut that down. So where previously there would be a case history over two or three pages, it's sometimes reduced to as little as half a page because I think the reader would, would be with me saying that no matter how much detail you give, you start, still come away not knowing what the heck was going on and why they behaved like they, like they did. So that part of the book I reduced considerably. Then when it came to the translation or the rewriting, I started by translating it and found the task near impossible because I think language is a beautiful thing. English is a, a really beautiful language. So is Afrikaans. But they are, although they're both Germanic languages in their origins, they are still so different in their tone, in their manner of expression. Afrikaans were the double negatives and so on that I just couldn't do a literal translation. So after about, I think, two or three chapters, I decided, no, this is not working. So I would look at a paragraph, sometimes a whole page, in Shepherds and Butchers, and then close the book and write that whole page over again, in Afrikaans. And eventually Donnell edited it, uh, fixed my Afrikaans, <laughs> which has, was a bit broken, and I think it just worked out a lot better than the English version of the book. Also, I must say with bit of self-deprecation. I'm a better writer now than I was in 2008. And what helped tremendously was the editing that I'd received, not just from Donnell, but also from others. But also, um, I, when I had nothing to do in New Zealand, when I arrived the, back there in 2012, I started a seminar for budding writers at our local library. And I would go and read up on elements of writing, creative writing. And we'd have a seminar and we'd do another one the next month and so on, dealing with issues like plot, characters, uh, settings, grammar, uh, all of those things. And that, by studying that and teaching it, I think I became a better writer. So I really think Luxman is probably my best book and my second best book was also one that I wrote a second time. I wrote the Van Buren murder trial story in English first, sorry, in Afrikaans first. And then I rewrote it in English, and the English is better than the Afrikaans. 
I think for that reason. I think most writers, and you, I think, admitted to this, would have a second opportunity, would like to have a second opportunity to write the book that they have written, or perhaps, I suppose, make the movie that you've made. You look at it and you think, I could have done that a little bit better. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Um, tell us about the Afrikaans version of, of Whiplash. Um, well, basically, CakeNet offered to to deliver, uh, to, to um, produce, uh, what, how do you call it? Fund a lot of the movies. So basically, to come up with a lot of the production money. And it was quite late in the production um, um, preparation process. And it was nothing for the director. She thought, fantastic, I don't care, that's brilliant. And she phoned me in excitement and said, Cagnet's going to fund the movie to a large extent. I can't remember the percentages. Um, if we do this in Afrikaans, fantastic. And I nearly died. I honestly <laughs> nearly died. Because again, I, you know, this is, it felt so real. The story felt so real. You know, the test was this character. She was from this background. You know, this is how she spoke. Especially her language is, was very much ingrained in my mind. And these are things that she said when these things were happening to her. So the sense of reality that, that can't be messed with, that has to be messed with, and must and will, um, was a bit of a stumbling block for me. But I, 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 yeah, I, I actually didn't sleep much that night, and then I was fine. <laughs> it's like, okay, do you want to have the movie made? You know, and then I felt so much better because I was invited to the translation, which is also just a big luck because as a writer, um, he's just sitting here very happily because he's had none of these issues. He doesn't know the deaths that we have died. As a writer, it's, you know, you get sidelined very quickly when, when they don't need you urgently, um, they'd rather leave you out of it because you, too, you care too much. You know, you're just like a big emotional, um, whirlwind in a way and they don't it's not conducive to, to moving forwards so but Meg the director was very kind um, and a good person intrinsically very good and she said please come along to the translation and I had such a lovely time because I sat with two brilliant people one was Quinita Adams who is an, a fantastic actress but she's from the Cape Flats so she she knows the, the casual the more um, um, Colloquial language. She knows it. It's in, it's in her bloodstream. And then a fantastic actress, scriptwriter called Margaret Goldsmith, who completely took it upon herself, to, because she's an actress, to embody Tess. And they just got it spot on, spot on. There was, a little, there was negotiation, but everybody agreed on the final. It was a day. It was a full flat day. It was really just one day of intensive translation. And each time, with each bit of dialogue, there was full agreement. I mean, negotiation, then full agreement. And I think it worked like a charm. Great. My turn. Um. <laughs> so he just sits and smiles. <laughs> As was the case with Tess, we were funded by CakeNet, which that definitely informed the choice to make the Yodan family Afrikaans. The film is 60% uh, Afrikaans, 40% English. And while I wrote the book in English, they were always then, because of this, an Afrikaans couple. In various drafts, they were a Zulu couple, they were a white English couple. 
it made sense creatively to have them of a language that Rachel did not understand because I love that dynamic of them speaking in their mother tongue to each other as a couple, which is absolutely fine, but doing that in front of someone who doesn't understand that and just creating a, you know, an imbalance between them. It meant our film could get, get made. The Afrikaans audience is, there is an audience. There's none for uh, really local South African English um, films. So that was awesome. It meant people would actually watch the movie. So it worked on a creative and a, a financial level level to do that. And then when it came down to the book being translated, I haven't read it. I've actually, it's the first time I've seen the, the book now. But uh, MB and Tafelberg came on board. And um, look, my theory with a lot of this stuff is this is my kid. I've given birth to it and raised it as a toddler. But then your child goes to nursery school and there's another teacher who's teaching them stuff. <laughs> There's other influences that come into that, and I can be that overprotective parent who's going to... When the big stuff comes, I'll be there to defend it, but um, if I've chosen well, um, and I feel I did with, with my publishers, um, then I can actually trust them. And, um, yeah, I, I've been very happy with what's come out of that. So it is that thing of if you choose the right village to raise your children, then actually you can, they can go so much further than you being the bottleneck holding them back. Just one observation from my side um, as film historian. Um, when, I, when I did my book uh, on the history of South African cinema, um, and, and, and particularly looking at uh, post-apartheid cinema, um, it, was, it really struck me that uh, if, you, if you look at a lot of the films made post-1994, it's almost if you as a viewer looking at the gallery of characters at the margin. It's a cinema of marginality. And Leon Lobeskachne is the Tess, Rachel. I don't know if you want to say anything about it, just if it's conscious or unconscious. Is it just almost like a, a sort of a collective and consciousness in terms of portrayal of characters, because it's ongoing in South African cinema. Uh, I have you know, I've thought a lot about this, and more acutely recently. Uh, the fact of the matter is that every society has people who do their dirty work for them. And that dirty work could be working as a sex worker, working as a maid, or a gardener, working as a prison warder present at, at executions. Every society on the planet trains people to do their killing for them. Policemen, policewomen, soldiers, pilots, ships captains, doctors involved and nurses involved in abortions, even the people working at the abattoirs. We employ people to do that work for us, out of sight where we don't see it, because we can't stand the sight of the blood. We don't have the guts to look at what we pay people to do. And that, to me, was the driving force behind Shepherds and Butchers. I wanted to write about a person like that, someone given this job. Uh, what's, what's going to happen to him? And uh, dare I say it, the film actually carried that through. The other disconnect is this, and maybe that's precisely what Brett uh, said a, a minute or two earlier. Uh, 
um, I'm in a session this afternoon with a, a Kenyan professor, Grace Musila, talking about uh, truth and fiction in true, true crime. And she's written a, a really dense book, uh, which will probably earn a PhD for the research that she's done into the disconnect between truth and fiction and truth and rumor when it comes to, in that case, a murder thing that happened in Kenya where a white British woman, 28 years old, was murdered in a, the Maasai Mara and how different British and white people perceived the events and developed their own opinions about what had really happened and how opposed to that was the opinion of the Kenyans, native Kenyans, who had a totally different view of the reality of the situation. And in the course of uh, Grace's book, she mentions a disconnect uh, between what we as Europeans experience in our lives and what we see and how we behave and, and that of our, I'm going to call them servants because I can't find a better word for it. In Brits from the, the nanny, the maid, the housekeeper, the cleaner is from a different culture. And when the, the husband and wife talk in the, speak in the house, they speak in their mother tongue. She's not, it's as if she's not there. But that, that psychology is present not just in our houses, it's in our society. And the irony of it is that the black people who are in our lives, in our houses, in our gardens, driving our cars for us, they know a lot more about us than we know about them. And I think that kind of, of or that knowledge, that realization is now coming to fore also in our literature and in our films. Um, that, that marginality thing is quite an, uh, definitely an unconscious process for me. Um, as an artist, I feel this pull, this very strong yearning to say the unsayable and speak, speak for victims or speak on behalf of people who have no voice. Um, that is becoming less and less necessary as, as uh, um, previously disadvantaged, historically poor, uneducated people or, or from a particular community are finding their own voices and their own mediums and, and speaking loudly and clearly. But still, I have it in me to say, to speak where no one has spoken. And my, my mission, I, I've tried to bring this unconscious purpose to the top of my mind so I can understand why it is that I write and what it is that I want to say. And it just generally seems to be um, to try and, and, and sh shake people out of their automatic judgment of the other. So it just feels like just to loosen up, loosen up those boundaries in the mind and just allow an, a, a, a temporary opening to see what, what might happen. And we can do this through character by pulling people into identification, to identify with an imaginary character without any fear or paranoia or any um, self-defense because they think, ah, oh, this is not 
unconsciously they're thinking, this is not real, so I can go with this person um, to places that they would never go, experience things that they would never, never experience, and come out of it thinking, oh my God, that could have been me. Um, so that, I, I find that very exciting, and that seems to be what was an unconscious mission and, and, and becoming more and more conscious. Um, my second novel was a little 12-year-old farm girl who narrated the entire thing, and the first person as well, in the Boerland of the Cape, and um, this charming stranger comes to stay, but he t- turns out to be, she thinks he's the answer to all their prayers, but he turns out to be a very sinister psychopath. Um, and underlying that story was the land question that's becoming so big now. And I'm really scared because I'm, I'm talking me, 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 but I'm enjoying it here. Yeah? <laughs> um, my third novel is written, and I don't know how it's going to go down in South Africa. I'm really seriously scared because it's narrated by a guy from West Africa who was a victim of a civil war and he has no tongue. Um, and, you know, there's all this, new, this very, very violent, heartfelt rhetoric about neo-colonialism. So I'm, I'm nervous. But I think the job of an artist is to be a, a ventriloquist. The job of a writer is to scratch open old wounds and where there are no wounds, to inflict new ones. Okay. <laughs> I guess I should say something while you wrapping up. I just want to... Just share something with you. Um, after I've seen Tess on um, Saturday, one of the overwhelming feelings afterwards about the film was how these women are actually in an environment where there's almost no protection from the men in their lives. And it was an incredible sort of feeling. Yeah, and that is the truth. If you if you go and speak to people who are doing sex work on the street and they don't have that roof over their heads, no security and nobody to care. I guess um, as far as marginalised characters, I can't say there was a mission for me to go out and do this um, or a true story it was based on. My views on creativity, a lot of people think you dig in inside yourself to get there. I, I believe that stories are floating around us not necessarily in a spiritual way, but on this collective consciousness, there are stories that want to be told. And um, the inspiration for this book and this film came, I was reading a, um, it's Jewish scripture, which is also repeated in Christian uh, scripture, which says, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for they are no more. Just those two words, Rachel weeping, conjured up this image of a mother weeping over the body of her child. And that's such a universal thing. I think any culture, any, any people group can identify with that kind of loss. And over time, this, this narrative grew in bringing in the experience of the foreign national, the, the worker-employee dynamic in South Africa. And only when I was, after writing the book, after writing the screenplay, busy doing the, the thank you, I decided to actually look at the context that the scripture that inspired the story was written into. And it was written to the Hebrew people when they were foreign nationals in the land of Babylon. And it was written to them, say, it actually goes on to say, um, refrain your voice from weeping, your eyes from tears, there is hope in your future. Uh, your children will return to the land from where they came. And it was so beautiful to see that actually Rachel's daughter does in a horrible way return to the land that she came from. But this, the very thing that inspired this narrative, the experience of the foreign national, the thing that called it out, which was written thousands of years ago, 
called it out again because it needed to be spoken of. And I, I just felt like I need to serve that, that narrative intentionally and unintentionally. Thank you so much for attending. Um, and thank you so much to, thank you. to participate. Okay.